we'll continue our study through the Gospel of John and just take a couple moments to um, center our hearts and calm our minds and our spirits for a few moments as we turn our attention to the study of God's Word as our act of worship this afternoon. Lord, we bless you for bringing us here um, in the presence of one another online as well as here in the room and in the presence of you. Jesus, we ask right now that you would give us eyes that hear and ears, ears that hear and eyes that see and minds that are awakened, awaken all the senses, that we might be very aware of how you are at work in our world, and in our lives. We pray that we would continue to seek your heartbeat in this world and in this place. And we're deeply grateful for the ways in which you continue to meet us wherever we're at. And we bless you for this time in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's continue our study through the Gospel of John. John 14, Jesus says this to his disciples. Remember, we're in the middle of that farewell discourse. There's like several chapters here, about three to four chapters where Jesus is just monologuing. Um, Different in some ways than some of the other synoptic gospels. We have some very long discourses here in the Gospel of John. And so I encourage you to please go and read them and wrestle with them. Um, They're beautiful and encouraging and confusing and all of that. Um, And we'll just dive into a couple little pieces here. Jesus says this to the disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In my father's house, there are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You can see right in this few moments, by the way, that Jesus can tell the disciples are worried, concerned, um, worried about what's happening outside the room, worried about what's happening within the room, worried about the powers that be, and they have good reason to be worried. And he says, don't be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled In my father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. He continues on, he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And all the disciples said, no, no, we don't. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The title of our message this afternoon is In My Father's House. So let's stop right there and ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, In my Father's house, there are many rooms? Well, let's look at the text and find out if there's any other times Jesus talked about a father's house and see if we can place it, okay? 
So for one, at the very beginning of John, in John chapter 2, 16, he goes into the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem, and he gets really upset at the money changers and the things that are happening there. And he takes out a whip and he turns over tables and it's all very intense. And he says, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. So here we have a reference to what as the father's house? the temple in Jerusalem. Good job. We also have a story back in Luke where Jesus hangs back. It's his first Passover, which probably just means the first time he brought his own lamb. It was about probably 13 years old and he's gone there with his parents. And then they all are on like the road back to Nazareth. And then about three days later, they discover he's nowhere to be found. And so they go running back to Jerusalem to try to find him. And when Jesus's parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So this is the term that Jesus used for the house of God. He's not the first one to call the temple the house. Your Bible calls it the house. Temple is a Greek word. So it's become the terminology that we have for a place, a neochorus, a like sacred holy place where a worship of a god occurs. There were lots of temples in the ancient Near Eastern, in the Greco-Roman world, in Asia Minor. But here specifically, when we read in our text things like, let us go up to the house of the Lord, um, let us be glad, all of that from the Psalms, it's referring to God's house. And the place where God put God's house, Solomon ended up building it, is Jerusalem. So when Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I think that they might have had some context. I mean, the word father is pretty intimate in this setting. Not that people did not see God as a parent figure. Um, There are passages in our Bible that say things like, Israel is my firstborn son, and I have brought them up, brought Israel out of Egypt on eagle's wings, there's some like parenting, nesting, um, maternal and paternal imagery there. But to call God, um, and, and the word father occurs also in Second Temple Judaism texts. So I don't want you, to, in fact, right away also in Psalms, like, this is my father. Okay, just so you know. Sometimes I've heard some Christian preachers say things like, Jesus was the first one to call God father, and that was this really intimate thing, and that was the, like, scandal of the day, that he would say something so intimate. Not, not really. Uh, tonight begins Rosh Hashanah, um, which is now called, it's called the head of the year in the biblical calendar. It wasn't there. It's called the Feast of Trumpets, um, the sounding of the shofar. And so that will start tonight, becomes Rosh Hashanah later on. So if you'll notice right here, we are all meeting in a synagogue. The Torah closet that's typically there isn't present right now. Instead, we have a some stacks of files. So um, back there, the Torah has been marched and moved over to the Jewish Community Center for the next few days, where its Chaim members, because this space is not big enough for all of them, will meet there for the High Holy Days. And today is the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. When you are invited, God willing, someday by a good Jewish friend who thinks that you can handle it and it'll be really lovely. Um, I am very honored to be able to join into services tonight and this week, this coming month as we have lots of high holy days. My favorite is tonight and tomorrow when they will blow the shofars, but they'll also sing this song called Avinu Malkenu, Our Father, Our King. So just so you know, father is a thing people do. 
they did it back then, they did now. That's not the thing that throws everybody off. It's really when Jesus is saying, he's mine, I'm with him, he's with me, we're one. I and the Father are one. That's going to throw some people off. You're kind of saying you're God. So, you know, that's, that's going to be a problem. So are, when, he, they, when he says to the disciples, in my father's house, there are many rooms, are they sitting there thinking, uh, Joseph, Nazareth? Are they sitting there thinking, okay, we've heard him talk about Jerusalem before. That maybe makes sense. He's talking about the temple or temple precinct. Is there a meeting room we're supposed to go to tonight? Like, is there a particular study session? Are we going to hang out, right? Is all of a sudden some of us going to be invited into the court for the priests. Who knows, right? So maybe they're asking those questions, but it actually also comes from some archaeological architecture found back in that Sunket Temple period. So this is called an insula or mishpacha. Mishpacha is the word in Hebrew for family. And this type of courtyard setting, this is, these are the remains at um, Capernaum, uh, Jesus' hometown on the shore of Sea of Galilee. Um, it would be like this. Like there's a common courtyard in the center and then rooms that get built around that courtyard. So a single family would probably have one large courtyard or maybe a couple families, one large courtyard in the beginning, in the middle, and then rooms would be built on the side. So when Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you, that would have had some meaning for people who understood how families lived and worked in that time. It's a really beautiful picture. Even today, by the way, if you go to the Middle East, you'll find different communities where as the apartment buildings are built up, the roof looks unfinished. And you think to yourself, why do they just have that roof with just pillars and rebar sticking out? And that's because there's another son who's also going to at some point build on another story so that the family continues to live together in that same space. So Jesus is actually starting to use bride language, bridegroom language for what would happen when you would want to betroth yourself to another. So typically what would happen is then the groom would go, somebody would say, I really like Ruth at the village next door, and the fathers would go and work all of this out. I'm just letting, I'm not saying this is how it should be done, you guys. I'm just saying how it was done, okay? And they would go and work it out, and then the groom would have to go and prepare a place for the bride, and then once that place was prepared, then the groom could go and get the bride, and they could be betrothed, and they could go and live in that room of the house. Does that make sense? Questions, comments, concerns? You got it? Okay. So we have this kind of bride language right here in the middle of this discourse in my father's house. There are many rooms. Like, Jesus, are you you getting married to one of us? What's happening? But remember that bride and marriage language persists throughout our biblical story, throughout our narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And so here, right here, we have Jeremiah 2 for one example. Jeremiah says, I remember, he's talking to Israel from the voice of God, I remember how eager you were to please me as a young bride long ago and how you loved me and followed me through the barren wilderness in the desert. So Jeremiah is trying to remind Israel of the days when they were back in the desert and were faithful to the Lord their God and when they saw themselves betrothed to their God. And then we have all the way in Revelation, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. This marriage language, this sort of intimacy is there. In fact, even in what we have like that uh, Passover kind of order of meal that's been happening here in John, as well as in the other synoptic gospels, we have that story where Jesus takes the cup and he says, this cup is a new covenant of my blood 
This is all part of the marriage and betrothal language that was around during that time. So marriage language, betrothal language has been pushed through all of the gospel of John. When Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and take you to myself. That phrase, take you, is similar to what is used for then we are now married, right? And they get to know one another in biblical sense. And that way, that way, where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to the place where I'm going. Now, this is where Thomas is like, I would love to GPS. Could you just tell me where, right? Where are you going? How can I possibly know the way when I have no idea where you're going and what you're talking about? To be fair, this is a confusing conversation to have in the middle of a Passover Seder. Just so you know, right? And while Rome is like right there, ready to take out any insurrection that's going on. And so Jesus gives him a very clear response. And he says... I am the way. Helpful, Thomas? Still can't put that in, right? Still can't put the GPS, like looking for that physical location. And so Jesus says, like, okay, here we go. I, you know the way to the place where I am going. Lord, we don't know where you're going. There's no way we can know the way. Oh, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That phrase, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, is one that people put on bumper stickers. They've used it to explain to so many um, why Jesus is the only way, all of those things. And yet, I don't know if we've ever really meditated on the power of this statement beyond just trying to use it um, in some sort of uh, invitation to others. So let's unpack it a bit. Just by saying the words, I am, we already have a loaded beginning. Anybody know why? Right. I'm assuming I heard you all correctly. Okay. So remember way back in Exodus 3.14 when Moses says at the burning bush, like, I don't even know who's sending me to go free the Israelites out of Egypt. God says to Moses, I am that I am. So one of the first names we ever have for God early on is I am. I am that I am. yod Hey vav Hey. We don't exactly know how to pronounce it. So in that powerful just I am statement, we've seen those I am statements push through then all of the gospel of John. We've seen I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection in the life. I am the way, the truth in the life. Here we are in John 14. I am the true vine. These I am statements, just by starting with the I am, we are already set up for some deep claims and theological conversation. And these I am statements don't exist in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not in the, some of the imagery exists for sure. Bread and light and life and shepherd, all of that. But these kinds of statements, these are very specific to the gospel of John. So right when he starts with the I am, everyone's like, probably sit tight, okay? He's already got some God language happening here. And we perceive him to be just a human and a very good rabbi teacher. So let's sit tight from it. And then he says, I'm the way. Why would he use that phrase? I am the way. Now, maybe it's to say, Lord, like we don't know where you're going. We just need to type that direction in. Could you just tell us the way to get to the father's house? That would be fantastic. There's also additional echoes there. We have here in way back in Genesis 18, 19, God says, for I've chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord 
by doing what is right and just. Teach them the Lord's decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. Deuteronomy 9.16. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourself an idol cast in the shape of a calf and you had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And Psalm 18.21. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Whether you turn to the right or the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this this is the way, walk in it, Isaiah chapter 30, 21. A voice of one calling. This is one we know very well if you have read your Gospels. This is you know, from, the, from John the Baptist. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight a desert, a highway for our God, Isaiah 43. And this is what the Lord says, Jeremiah six sixteen. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. This phrase, the way, means to do and live out the commandments of God, to walk them out in your world, to do it God's way. It's to live a very specific way. And so Jesus is explaining to them, I am the way. I am the way you get there. I am the way you do it. I am the way you are to live. This phrase, the way, is so important specifically to understand the concept of rabbi discipleship and imitation of life that we here at Spark, this is our mission, our vision statement, inspiring people to live the way of Jesus. The way Jesus does it. This is what we're trying to do. In fact, that phrase, the way, became so central and characteristic for the early Christians. That's how they became known. Before they were known as Christians, they were called followers of the way. Acts chapter 9, verse 2. If Paul found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He wasn't really happy of this new movement. Um, About that time in Acts chapter 19, 23, this is in Ephesus, there arose a great disturbance about the way and acts 24 14 however i admit that the worship the god of our ancestors that i worship the god of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect and i believe everything that's in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets so the way was a a phrase that meant something more than just how to get there it's a, it's a bit more than that so he starts with i am the way next he's like i am the truth Where do we get this word truth? Why would he pick that above everything else? Well, we already have echoes in John. John chapter 8 for 1, 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The truth will set you free, Jesus says. And then the third John, the letter, the third letter of John in John chapter 1. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And you can kind of hear a resonance and a combination of the way and the truth, right? It's not enough just to know something. It's something that you also have to do, but you also have to believe and know it. Now, the next thing Jesus talks about, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why would he pick this framing? 
Well, maybe it's because of these passages in John already, this theme of life that we've seen come through. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says, I am the bread, the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, have it abundant. And Jesus said to her in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will live even though they die. So when Jesus is talking about life, he's talking about life in the present, in the now, and also life in the world to come. Are there potential echoes pushing through our entire Hebrew scriptures as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Yes, absolutely lots of echoes. Also one additional one. It's said by some that oftentimes the Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, were referred to as the way and the truth and the life. So here we have in Psalm 119.1, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, derech in Hebrew, who walk in the, law, in the law, the Torah of the Lord. So the Torah provides you the way, right? Uh, Psalm 119.142, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your Torah is truth. And Proverbs 13, 14, the Torah, the law of the wise is the foundation of life of Chai to depart from the snares of death. And Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the law, the Torah is a light and reproofs of instruction are the way, the derech of Chai, of the life. So the Torah has often been referred to as the way that a person is supposed to follow, as the truth, and obedience to Torah is life, and the Torah is also often called a tree of life. One of the reasons why this congregation is called Eitz Chaim, which means tree of life. Maybe this is an additional echo that we find then in John chapter 1, right? Right at the very beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I would just caution you, I don't think that this is a replacement of the Torah in any way, but I do think that Jesus is grabbing those echoes and saying, as you know me, as you follow me, as you see me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says this phrase, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I have most often heard this as, this is the golden ticket that you need in order to get into that heavenly amusement park in the sky. Okay, so we need everybody to just very firmly, really hard, really, really firmly believe in your hearts that Jesus is the only way. And if you believe that, then you can have this ticket and this ticket gets you in. No one comes to the father unless you have this. And I've heard it very exclusionary. I don't think that's an uncommon interpretation. Is that pretty much how everybody else has always heard it? Yeah, sure. Uh, Dr. David Stern, Jewish New Testament commentary says, this is a statement whose audacity, breadth, and apparent arrogance and sheer chutzpah pose a serious problem. What exclusivity, what intolerance for a religion to accept Yeshua, that's the um, Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus' name, to accept Yeshua's claim to be the only way to God. It requires a decision either to acknowledge Yeshua's position as the Messiah, the Son of God, or to reject him as a madman or fraud. And to reject religion centering on him as deceptive at best. There is no tertium quid. For if one holds that Yeshua was a great teacher, the unavoidable question is, then why don't you believe and act on his great teaching? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I think it's a fair question, isn't it? 
And maybe many of us are in this room because we, we, kind of, we kind of do believe this. We believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that this is the way you come to the Father. This standard Christian orthodoxy, kids. But I know that some of us, in our deconstructing mode and all the other things that we like to do, would just like to toss out 2,000 years of orthodoxy and standard Christian teaching because our modern sensibilities don't like it. I get it. It's uncomfortable. But this is what he says. This is the account of what he says. And the people who believed this and followed it, believed it so well, lived out that way, that truth, that life so well, uncompromisingly, that they almost all met very difficult ends as a result of their unwillingness to say that it wasn't true. So I'm going to ask those of us who believe it and are very comfortable with it, great, wonderful, I'm glad you're comfortable. You can still wrestle with it too. Those of us in this room who are super uncomfortable with it, great, wonderful, wrestle with it too. I would suggest you even talk to Jesus about it. Feel free. He's on the line. You can say, I don't like that. I don't understand it. Can you help me understand And maybe just go and start meditating on all of the echoes that everybody else would have heard in that room. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And here's one other framing that might help if you're wrestling with it. I think it might sound exclusive, except that it's open to everybody. Nobody needs to be kept away. Everyone can come. You don't have to be a particular gender or a particular ethnicity or a particular anything. The path, this way of Jesus is open to all. And Jesus doesn't leave us having to imagine what the way might look like. He shows us. He lives it. He lives it through his servanthood. He lives it through his lying down one's life. He lives it through giving us the command to love one another. And we've been talking about that for the last few weeks in particular in this Gospel of John series. That Jesus is the way. He's showing us the way to live. He's showing us how to love one another. He's not leaving us on our own. And if God's true path exists, perhaps we can be profoundly grateful to Jesus for providing a way out of the sinful condition that we're all in. And truly setting us free so that we might have life and have it abundant. In Christ, we can become a new creation. And this is what he's telling everybody, right? And he's also saying, I am the way, the truth, and life. Watch what's going to happen next. This is the way to the Father's house. I would also say that the way, my favorite way of presently interpreting this verse, that phrase, no one comes to the Father but through me, is back to last week's sermon where he put on those love goggles. That this is the way we understand the Father is through the lens of the cross, through the lens of the life of Jesus. This is how we come to the Father. If you come to the Father any other way but through Jesus, you might be able to read a set of verses in the Bible and come away thinking, I don't know, like it's okay to oppress people or it's okay to, I don't know what you might Some crazy people might come away thinking that the Bible justifies, right? 
But if you read it through the lens of Jesus, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you read it through those love goggles, then you come to the Father. You come to the Father that I think we can meet on the pages of that text. But I meet God the Father in, in our story, in our text, Genesis through Revelation, I meet God the Father on this side of the resurrection, right? On this side of the cross, looking through those love goggles. And so when I hear Jesus say, no one comes to the Father but through me, I think he's saying, you have to watch me to know the character of the Father, how deeply the Father loves. Look at me, watch how I live, watch how I die, and watch how I live again. So given all those reflections, let's just for a few moments together look back at this very short passage of John. And I recommend you read the before and the after. At the end of this chapter, Jesus says this weird thing where he's like, come, let's rise. And then he keeps talking for like two more chapters. It feels like I'm in the middle of a soliloquy of Hamlet or Shakespeare or something. I write some, something where it's like, come, let us go. And then, nope, I've got two more chapters for you to listen to. So let's just take this first little bit and listen again with maybe some of these echoes. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Isn't that good news just for a moment? If your heart is troubled, imagine these people in this room who are looking right into the face of the Roman machine. Don't worry. God's actually got something much bigger than this moment planned. Maybe it's not just only about right, what's right here, right now. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? You know, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, and on the days when we really believe this, this is very hopeful, isn't it? What we see in front of us And the injustices that we see happening in our world, young people dying way too young, to be able to believe and and know it in our knower on the days we can know it, that God has prepared something greater than what we can see in front of us is good news. It's really good news. And if you haven't had to wrestle with seeing somebody that you really love pass away, um, you haven't had to love yet the good news of this verse. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And if you know me, you will know my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus has prepared a place for us in the Father's house. All are welcome. All are invited. All are bid to come. All who are thirsty and hungry, come. All are welcome in the Father's house. There is a place made for you and for me. And that place is being prepared for us. And Jesus has invited us all.
And when you get there, if somebody says, how dare you think you have a place here? What did you do to deserve or to earn such a place here, to have a room in the Father's house? You won't start the statement with I. I did this, I did that. You'll start the statement with, he welcomed me. Jesus prepared a place for me. He bid me come. He showed me the way and the truth. He gave me life abundant. And I am a new creation in Christ because of it. In that father's house where there are many rooms, there is a banqueting table. And that table, again, we are all invited to. It's not my table. It's not your table. It is the Lord's table. And for in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. Come. Come.